Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me tonight in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 13, how to prepare for the last days. The study of the end times or last things is called eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means last, and logos, which means word or teaching about. So eschatology is the study of the end time. And, of course, when that issue is raised, all sorts of questions come to our mind with respect to personalities and particular events, such as who is the Antichrist, uh, who is the false prophet, is the rapture pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, post-tribulational, pre-wrath rapture or whatever, partial rapture, uh, exactly what's going on with the seal judgments in Revelation 6 and the trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 and 9, and the bowl judgments in Revelation 16, and who is the great whore of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, and what about this man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and on and on and on we go. And those are all very good questions. But the text that we're going to examine tonight is not in those personality kinds of questions, even those particular event kind of questions, but rather... It raises the question, what is the moral condition of the world going to be like as we move toward the end times? What is going to happen in terms of personal ethic and behavior and morality as we move toward the end of the age? And so in that context, let's back up for a moment and kind of get a running start into it because the first phrase of chapter 3 is, but no, and it's a contrast, but not a contrast in that it's like this and then it's going to be like something else. But rather, it's as if Paul says, look, here's what God hopes will happen and here's how God intends to work in terms of repentance for those who come to their senses and embrace the truth. But the fact of the matter is, things are going to get worse and worse and worse before they get better. You say, when are they going to get better? And the answer is when Jesus comes again. And so look at chapter 2, verse 22, to give us kind of a running start into our passage tonight. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue in contrast righteousness, faith, love, peace, kind of a shorthand of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 33, uh, with those who call on the name of the Lord, or who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But in contrast to pursuing righteousness and faith and love and peace, uh, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, uh, knowing that they simply generate strife. And as a servant of the Lord, must not be a servant of the Lord, must not quarrel, but should be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. But in spite of the fact that we in humility correct them, in spite of the fact that we pray that God will grant them repentance, 
in spite of the fact that we hope that God will lead them to know the truth. In spite of the fact that we pray that they will come to their senses, escape the snare of the devil, and be set free from his captivity to his will. In spite of all of that, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people... Turn away, for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. But you, and now we have a positive contrast, but you have carefully followed what? Nine things. My doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You and I in this life and in this particular period of time should be working for that which is good, that which is righteous. We should be pursuing with a red-hot passion the souls of lost men and women with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And indeed, the Bible promises us in the book of the Revelation that as we move toward the end of the age, there is going to be a great turning of people to faith in Christ, a number so great that John says in Revelation 7, he could not count all of them. And yet, at the same time, this great turning of men and women to faith in Christ is occurring. The world is going to be getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Indeed, Paul says this, John says this, Peter says this. All of Scripture bears out the theme that as we move toward the last days, things are not going to get better, but rather things are going to get worse. And therefore, the question is, what do you and I do? And how is it that you and I can prepare well for those times as they are more quickly than ever approaching the age in which we live? Well, there are three things that Paul tells us in these 13 verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Number one, know the times. Know the times. Be aware of the times in which we now live. But know this. That in the last days, perilous times, uh, dangerous times, very difficult times will come. Now, question, what does he mean by the last days? Well, actually, we live in the last days. Now, in my judgment, we are living in the latter part of the last days. But the fact of the matter is, the last days began. In fact, John calls it in 1 John chapter 2, this is the last hour. 
This is the last hour. And what I think we would say today is we're in the final minutes of the last hour. And in light of 2 Timothy 3, we're in the final days of the last days. But the point is this. We have been in the last days since the Christ event. Since Jesus came... Since he died, since he was raised from the dead, and since he ascended back into heaven, we have been in what the Bible calls the last days. It is a very strong statement that contrasts the previous age and the age to come with the age in which we live right now. We're looking for a new age, a new day, a new kingdom. But right now, since we have this period of time between his first and second coming, how do we describe that biblically? The Bible says it is the last hour. The Bible says it is the last days. And so Paul, I think, would say these kind of things have always been present in some measure during this particular period of time between his first and second coming. But however, as we move more and more and more and more toward the end of the last days, you can expect these circumstances to intensify and you can expect these things will become more acute than ever before. You say, well, what will these times look like? I make five observations for you in verses one through four. And by the way, he lists no less than 19 different descriptions of what these days are going to look like as we move toward the end of time. He says, first of all, they will love the wrong things. This particular opening paragraph, verses 1 through 4, both ends, uh, begins and ends are on the subject of love. It says that, know this, <clears throat> in the last days, perilous times will come for, verse 2, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, drop down to the uh, latter part or the middle part of verse 4, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. So four times in this opening paragraph, Paul emphasizes the wrong affection, uh, the wrong love of the end times. He says they will be lovers of themselves, idolaters. Uh, they will deify man. They will idolize themselves. It's basically Romans 1 writ large over the world. Secondly, he says they will be lovers of money. In other words, they will be consumed by the material. Uh, it will be their God as well. They'll worship themselves and they'll worship the things that they can accumulate for themselves. Welcome to the United States in the year 2009. But certainly a very apt description of what are the gods of this age in our 21st century context. But he also says at the end of verse 4, the bottom line is this. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They love pleasure, their lust. They love money, their gold, and they love themselves. And Paul says, as we move toward the end of the age, people will love the wrong thing. Secondly, they will think in the wrong way. He says they will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, and here's the key word here, proud. Proud. They will think the wrong way in that they will have a self-evaluation that is faulty, thinking more of themselves than they ought. In actuality, they will, as the Bible says elsewhere, they will think they're something, when in actuality, they are nothing. 
They will think that they in and of themselves are the end of all things. They will think that they in and of themselves have inherent value and worth, forgetting the fact that any worth and any value that you and I have is the result of our being made in the image of God, the very one that men, as we move toward the end of the age, will deny, reject, oppose, ridicule, and run away from. And so they love the wrong things. They think the wrong way. But thirdly, they will speak the wrong words. He also says there in verse 2 that they will be boasters, they will be blasphemers, and they will be slanderers. Boasters. They'll be braggarts. Again, puffed up with who they are, who they think they are, and therefore compelled to tell everyone who they think that they are. Blasphemers. Uh, has the idea here of, of, of ridicule, has the idea here of speaking down of others and uh, speaking ill of others, slanderers. Uh, at the very heart of their deception is lying. And so they will misrepresent people. They will not speak as things uh, correctly and truly are. Uh, you and I, again, can read almost any secular periodical. And uh, again, let me preface by saying sometimes those of us who are Christians... Uh, those of us who are evangelicals, we don't put our best foot forward. And sometimes we kind of stick our jaw out there and say, why don't you go ahead and take a lick at me? Because we just say some really dumb stuff. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, we do not need to expect that we'll ever get a fair shake from a secular world. We should never expect that they will give an accurate, balanced, faithful, true depiction of who we really are. I have a friend that is an atheist. And several years ago, he came to live in our community when I was teaching in Dallas. And after going to our college and taking classes, going on a mission trip, going to a Southern Baptist convention, going to a pastor's conference and so on, uh, he wrote a book entitled um, A Skeptic Revisits Christianity, chapter and verse, A Skeptic Revisits Christianity. And he actually wrote a pretty positive book. He actually was quite fair in his analysis and assessment of who we are, what we think, what we believe, how we live. And as a result of that, his publisher nearly canned the book. In fact, he had to fight very, very hard to even get the book published. They gave it absolutely no uh, PR. You say, why? Because they wanted a hatchet job. They said, this is not critical enough. This does not portray these crazy fundies in the light that we know that they all live, exist, and conduct themselves. And so, because he actually tried to write a fair, balanced book, criticizing us as well as praising us, uh, telling them what we did well and what we did not do well, no, 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 they didn't want anything good. They wanted nothing less than a hatchet job. And the fact of the matter is, as we move toward the end of the age, you and I should expect that people will slander and they will misrepresent. And so they are loving the wrong things. They're thinking the wrong way. They're speaking the wrong words. And they will act with wrong passions. Uh, they will be disobedient to parents. Uh, they will be <clears throat> unthankful. They will be unholy. In fact, look at it very clearly there in verse 3. There's the word again, unloving, unforgiving, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty. Very violent words in some ways in the context of how these people are going to act. It's very interesting that side by side are the phrase disobedient to parents and unthankful. 
disobedient to parents and uh, unthankful. Now, I think the idea of being unthankful is a general concept, but I also think that uh, Paul may have had this in mind. Not only will they be disobedient when they're young, they will also be unthankful toward their parents as they get older. They'll be disobedient when they're young and unthankful as they get older, which is why more and more adults, if they don't verbalize it, at least by their actions, demonstrate it, see aging parents as they see children as a burden and not a blessing, as a hindrance and not a help. And if you were at the Southeastern Seminary yesterday, or if you go online and you ought to, you will hear that uh, yesterday we heard the message of a 95-year-old saint of God by the name of M.O. Owens, Jr., who still has incredible dexterity and incredible mind. In fact, in the last three days, this 95-year-old man has played 54 holes of golf. This is unbelievable. But as he was talking, he said, we are living in a day where there's more and more of a movement to say that people like me have an obligation to die, have an obligation to move on. And the fact is, he said, and I think correctly so, there'll be a time not too far in the future where those who are not capable of any longer making such a decision will have the government step in and make the decision for them. Disobedient to parents when we're young, unthankful toward them as we grow older, unholy, no, no fear of God, no desire to live for Him, unloving. Uh, any affection that I have is turned back in on me and not turned out toward anyone else. Unforgiving, the, the word could be translated irreconcilable. And of course, there's so many ways in which we could apply that today, but I think in terms particularly of marriage, where the idea of reconciliation is almost a byword as we see the divorce culture just continue to percolate and grow and the destruction and the fallout and the body strewn everywhere becomes more and more evident with each passing year without self-control. Why are they without self-control? Because they're controlled by their passions. Brutal. Because they're controlled by their passions and as a result of that they become nothing more than an animal. They have the same kind of disposition as a dog or a cat or a lion or a bear or a tiger. And they are run by their brutal nature. Despisers of good. That which is grounded in the very character and nature of God. Not only do they reject, they despise and they ridicule. Traitors. There's no one that I need to be faithful to but me. And whatever I need to do to get ahead, whatever I need to do to climb the ladder, whatever I need to do to promote my own self-interest, then that's what I'll do. And if I have to betray someone, even betray a friend, even betray a mate, even betray a family member, then so be it. I do what's in my best interest. You know, sometimes in life you'll meet people like that, sometimes even in the church. And the fact is, if you'll pay close attention, they'll never really hurt you because you can always count on them doing what is in their best interest. I've got some acquaintances like that. They never blindside me. Say, so you're such a cynic. Well, I've watched a lot of sinners. And I look at one every morning in the mirror. And he's a pretty bad one, so I'm kind of, I don't even trust him. In fact, I trust him the least. That guy I look at in the mirror every morning, I trust him the least. But I've had others that, you know, I can just about count on them in advance. If there's a decision to be made, they will do, without fail, what is in their best interest. 
And the Bible says that's going to be a cardinal characteristic of those who are alive as we move toward the end of the age. Headstrong, my way or the highway. My way or the highway. Haughty, which again has the concept of being prideful and arrogant and condescending. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, which leads to that final uh, problem. They live by the wrong priorities. Whereas they ought to love God, they love pleasure. Whereas they ought to love God, they love themselves. And therefore, the Bible says, just take notice as we move toward the end of the age. This will be the characteristics of the times in which we will find ourselves. But then secondly, the Bible says, as for you and for me, we must turn from the troublemakers. Why should we turn from the troublemakers? Well, he gives us five reasons why. First of all, he says there in verse five, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And therefore, from such people, turn away. That phrase, turn away, is an imperative. It's also in the present tense. So the imperative is a word of command. He's not asking you to do this. He's telling you, you need to turn away. It's in the present tense, which means it is to be the habit of your life to turn away from. In fact, it has the idea of turning yourself away in horror. That's how one commentator put it. Turning yourself away in horror because of the danger that you find in these people. What's wrong with them? They're spiritually impotent. They have a form of godliness. In other words, at least on the outside, these teachers. Now, he's shifting for us, okay? He is basically in verses, don't miss this now, in verses 1 through 4, he's given us 19 general characteristics, counting the opening of verse 5, 19 general characteristics of what life will be like as we move toward the end of the age. However, in particular, the false teachers that he is most concerned about have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. In other words, there is a veneer. There is a facade. There is a sense in which they claim to speak for God. They claim to be religious. Oh, that doesn't work in our day and time. Does it? So here's what we do in our day and time. I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual. In fact, if you take a survey of most Americans and you ask them, one, are you spiritual or two, are you interested in spiritual things? You'll get an overwhelming yes. You say, well, that's a good thing. Not necessarily. What type of spiritual things are they interested in? What kind of spiritual teachings do they follow and embrace? And Paul says there is going to be at the end of the age a type of teaching that has a form of godliness. But it does not have the power of godliness. Why? Because it doesn't have Christ. It doesn't have the gospel. It does not have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Just keep this in mind. It's really quite simple. Um, no Jesus, no power. No gospel, no power. No Holy Spirit, no power. End of discussion. That's all we need to say. You say it's more complex than that. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, no, it's not. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary to India, was asked this question one time by a Hindu. What does Christianity offer that I don't already have? He had one answer. Jesus. Jesus. We have Jesus and that's the only thing we have. And by the way, that's the only thing that we need. So when you and I today are confronted with the sirens of the modern age, you and I need to ask, what do they think about Jesus? 
Do they truly understand? And let me say this again. Do they truly understand the gospel? Uh, in recent uh, days, you may have you keep up know that on um, on uh, the blog blogosphere world and Baptist Press. In fact, I'd encourage you all tonight to go to a, a website entitled GreatCommissionResurgence.com. Single word. Don't put any spaces between it. GreatCommissionResurgence.com. And there you will find a document that I was invited to assist Dr. Johnny Hunt, President of the Southern Baptist Convention, in crafting. That already has more than a thousand signatures in less than three days. And one of the things that document emphasizes is the fact that the church is always in danger of losing the gospel. Losing the gospel. Now, here's my fear. Even in a group like this that's here faithfully on the Wednesday night, which means you also come on Sunday morning and Sunday night. It's possible that you have lost the gospel, that you misunderstand the gospel, because you see, the gospel is always in danger of being eclipsed by religion, by religion. And the gospel becomes not something God did for us in Jesus, but something I do to earn God's approval. And that last statement, something I do to earn God's approval, is not only not the gospel, it is a heresy that will lead you to hell. The gospel is always about what God did for us in Christ that we could not do for ourselves. The gospel is always a message of grace and mercy. The gospel is that Jesus lived a sinless life made a perfect atoning sacrifice for sin, was buried, raised again for our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, and that if you will put your faith and trust in Him, He will save you. That's the gospel. And therefore, I serve Him not because I have to, but because I want to. And I, I, I am not accepted because I obey, but I obey because I am accepted. And it makes all the difference in the world which one comes first. And so many of us are so foolishly duped and deceived by thinking. As long as, you know, when I was a little boy, we still may have them. I, just, I always give the child takes care of the, the money. I'm never here on Sunday, uh, but I do send my tithes. So we, we're always, you know, still contributing. But when I was a little boy, we had those little envelopes. Do we still have them? We do? Where you can check off everything? Check off, I read the Bible every day. Check off, I read a Sunday school lesson. Check off, I, I prayed every day. Check off, you know, dun, dun, dun. And we had the, and I know it wasn't, and he said, all that, you saying all that's bad. I'm not saying any of that's bad. Except if I think checking off a bunch of things on an envelope is going to get me right to relate to God, I have been taught a false gospel. That's not the gospel. You can check, I guarantee you the Pharisees could check off every list. And they were lost. Because they thought that they could earn a right standing before God. And again, I say it all the time, and I'm not going to quit saying it. I have the greatest fear that our churches are filled with people who've never been born again. Filled with people who are lost. Filled with people who think, I am doing good. God will have to accept me. And such a theology will only land you in that horrible place called hell. You can't do good. You are not good. You are a depraved, wicked sinner apart from the amazing grace of God. That's why we sing, 
amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Oh, did you create sight for yourself? I don't think so. God gave your blind eyes the ability to see through his amazing grace, his wonderful gospel. But there's all sorts of false teaching out there that has a form of godliness that denies its power. And the Bible says from such people turn away. Why? Because they are spiritually impotent, but also they are morally inadequate. For of this sort are those, he says, for example, and he'll take an extreme one here. There are those who creep into households. And they make captives of gullible, some translations say silly, but gullible women who are what? Loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. It seems that Paul has a particular group of women in mind here. You say, well, it's not very nice. Well, evidently these were women who had come out of a, shall we say, less than wholesome lifestyle. Because it says in the text that they are loaded down with sins. And I think the implication is that though they come out of a sinful lifestyle and Perhaps God has forgiven them. They haven't forgiven themselves. And so their sins still act as a, a hindrance to their conscience. Their sins still follow them and trail them. Some of you are here tonight and you have the same issues. God has forgiven you completely of all of your sins, but you haven't forgiven yourself for your sin. And you let that guilt, you drag it around with you like this massive albatross. And in essence, you're calling God a liar, saying, I know that you forgave at least some of my sins, but you haven't forgiven all of my sins. And I've got to do something to earn the rest of your forgiveness. That's a miserable way to live. It's a tragic way to live. And so because they were loaded down with sins... And because they were still being led, unfortunately, by their lust, by their passions, Paul says they're gullible. <laughs> they're just gullible women. Just like if that was a description of men, they would be gullible men. And so they are susceptible to the false teachers because they have not rightly understood that the gospel deals with their sin problem from beginning to end. And it just does. And so he said to these false teachers who sneak in and make captives of these women, they're always learning. No, they're not nincompoops. They're not stupid. They're my favorite word. They're not idiots. No, no, no. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning what? Lies. Always learning that which is untrue, that which is false, that which is misleading, that which is not correct. In other words, this may be the sin of the scholar. A bunch of PhDs, in, if you want to use that vernacular, running around, claiming to know something when in actuality they know nothing. And the Bible says, we have a presence for this. There was these two rascals back during the time of the Exodus and Moses named Janes and Jambres who resisted Moses. You say, well, I don't remember reading about... Uh, Jannies and Jambres in uh, the book of Exodus. You didn't. You didn't. As Dr. Lanier can tell you, the, they're not there. You say, well, then, where do their names come from? Well, we know that in extra-biblical writings, that some of the magicians who represented Pharaoh, who came against Moses, had the name Jannies and Jambres. In other words, this was a common, passed-down tradition that most of the Jewish persons that Paul was writing to, they, they would have known. 
And so Paul is not endorsing all extra biblical writings, but he is saying that at least in this instance, they were correct that there were these magicians. They were these false teachers. They were these of Pharaoh who resisted Moses. And so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds. Now, it's a fascinating argument that he's making here. We're talking about what in chapter 3, the end times, aren't we? But he goes back to the Exodus. And he says, look, let's just be honest. Yeah, things are going to get worse as we move toward the end. But question, have false teachers always been around? Yes. Have opponents of God's truth always been around? Yes. Are those who stand in opposition and as God's enemies always going to be around? Yes, until the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And so if you look to the back, you see false teachers. If you look to the forward, you see false teachers. If you look around today, you see false teachers. How are they characterized? In whatever age you find them, they resist the truth. They are men of corrupt minds. By the way, he uses there a perfect tense verb, which speaks of a settled state in terms of their corrupt mindedness, their corrupt thinking. And therefore, this is the most tragic statement of all to me in all these verses. They are disapproved concerning the faith. They are disqualified concerning the faith. In other words, these men are lost. They're lost. They're not saved. They're not regenerated. They've not been born again. They are disapproved concerning the faith. And so they are spiritually impotent. They are morally inadequate. They are theologically ignorant. And he says also they are personally insubordinate. They are men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the truth. And the most uh, telling statement, perhaps, of all is ultimately, verse 9, they're inexcusable. They will progress no further. For their folly, their error, it will be manifest to all as theirs also was. The theirs also is probably a reference to Janes and uh, Jambres. As they were exposed for the false teachers that they are, these will also be exposed for the false teachers they are. And the Bible says when you spot a troublemaking false teacher, you need to turn and run as fast as you can. So, know the times. Turn from the troublemakers. And finally, and this is perhaps the key to number two, follow the truth. Just follow the truth. Now, the but you in verse 10 makes a strong contrast between false teachers on the one hand and the Apostle Paul on the other. But you have carefully followed what? And here Paul begins by telling you and me, you want to follow the truth? Then number one, pursue the right examples. He lists no less than nine characteristics of his example. Furthermore, the word my is fronted for emphasis in the Greek text. And so it's actually said quite well here in uh, the New King James. But you, in contrast, Timothy, have carefully followed not the teachings of a Janes and a Jambres, not the teachings of these with corrupt minds, not the teaching of these who are leading those ladies away in lust and who are leading away those people uh, in a form of godliness that has no power. No, in contrast. You have carefully followed, number one, my doctrine, number two, my manner of life, number three, my purpose, number four, my faith, number five, my long-suffering, number six, my love, number seven, my perseverance, number eight, my persecutions, and number nine, my afflictions. 
And Paul says, here is an example worth following. Here is a life worth emulating. Now, if you think about it, some of these are not such a big deal. But some of these are rather interesting. I mean, you followed my doctrine or teaching. No big deal. Manner of life. Well, I have to think about that a little bit, Paul, because your manner of life sometimes led you to some rather precarious situations. Well, yes, and I'm going to bring those right back up for you in just a minute in the latter part of verse 11. Uh, follow my purpose. Well, I like your purpose because, as you said in Philippians, for you to live as Christ, to die as gain. I, I, I'm pretty impressed with how you had such a laser beam focus in terms of your own personal life. You followed my faith. That is, that in uh, good times and bad times, in good days and bad days, I kept my faith in the Lord and trusted Him no matter what. My long-suffering, my, my perseverance. In other words, Paul just hung in there, hung in there, hung in there, hung in there. He reported for work every single day, reporting for duty, King Jesus, what do you have for me today? And whatever he got that day, he showed back up the next day, reporting for duty, King Jesus, what do you have for me today? And again, the longer I live, the more I admire perseverance. The longer I live, the more I admire those who are long-suffering. The more, the longer I live, the more I admire those who just hang in there, hang in there, hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. I am not impressed with loud-mouthed shooting star Christians. And I guarantee you, God's not either. I'm not impressed all that much with people who wind up on a platform like I am this evening. I'm far more impressed with those quiet, consistent saints who just show up day after day after day after day after day in faithful service to Jesus because they love Him. And I don't say this with any false humility, but I suspect when I get to heaven, I'll be way, 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 way in the back with some big shot preachers who hopefully will be there, but I'm not sure about all of them. And up around the throne are going to be some of the unknown saints that no one down here ever paid any attention to, but in heaven... God was watching, and he was so pleased, and he has made sure that they have a choice seat down front. And so the Bible says, my long-suffering, my love, how I love the lost, how I pursued the Gentiles with, a, with an abandonment, my perseverance, my persecutions. Well, wait a minute. I, I need to be willing to follow you in your persecutions if that's what God has for you. And even in my affliction, in fact, let's just be reminded real quickly, these things happened to me at Antioch at Iconium, and at Lystra. Now, you ought to mark Lystra, because many Bible teachers believe, and you say, well, where do we find this actually recorded, Acts 13 and 14? If you want to read what Paul is talking about here in verse 11, just go to Acts 13 and verse 14. That's his first missionary journey. And you will read of his ministry at Antioch, his ministry at Iconium, and his ministry at Lystra, where two things are very interesting. Number one, they stoned him and left him for dead. And number two, according to Acts 16, verse 1 and verse 2, it's almost certain that Timothy was from Lystra. And so a number of the men that I read in preparation for this study said that they would not be surprised at all if Timothy had actually witnessed the stoning of Paul, just like Paul witnessed the stoning of Stephen. God used the stoning of Stephen to bring Paul to Christ, and it is it possible that God used the stoning of Paul to bring Timothy to Christ. We do know that by chapter 16, Timothy is now traveling with him. And so it may be simply Paul's way of reminding him of what he had witnessed with his own eyes, what persecutions I endured, and yet out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Now, did the Lord deliver him in the sense of sparing his life? Yes. Did the Lord deliver him in the sense that he suffered no harm? <laughs> no. I would say getting stoned and left for dead is a bad day. 
That's just my opinion. I would count that as a bad day. But Paul says, no, the Lord delivered me. He raised me back up. I walked back. In fact, in my judgment, he probably was still a little stoned, pun intended, because he walks back in to the place where they had run him out of time. I mean, that's, you know, if I get stoned, I don't know about you all, but I get stoned over here and God miraculously raises me back, I'm headed over there. That's just me. Now, that's, that's just, you say, well, that's because you're a burp, burp, guilty as charged. We're, 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 this is confession time tonight, so guilty as charged. I'm going over there. No, Paul goes back. I mean, it's just amazing. It's amazing, and yet what he is saying is, in the midst of all that, uh, the Lord delivered me. And so he says, so Timothy, here's one of these non-negotiable spiritual truths that all of us need to embrace. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you live godly, you will suffer persecution. And let me make a quick statement before I move to close. If you suffer persecution... Please ask the question, is it because I'm living godly or is it because I am a donkey's back in and act like a jerk? Just a, just a thought. Is it because I am living godly and that's why they're persecuting me? Or is it because I'm just basically not a very nice person to be around? You see, again, a lot of you guys are in seminary, just to be honest with you, uh, I get to hear some of your horror stories about how you go out and serve a church and minister to a place. And they just treat you so badly. And they so uh, are unkind to you. And uh, you suffer mightily and perhaps are run off, lose your church, whatever. And sometimes, by the way, I, I want to be fair. There are some churches out there that really shouldn't be called churches. Let me restate it. There are some religious clubs out there that are filled with people mean as the devil. I really acknowledge that. But I also know that there are some ministers that are just donkey back ends. They're just not very nice. And they have a persecution complex when the fact is they need to be persecuted because they're just rude. And they're mean and they're arrogant and they're condescending and they're, they, they act almost like they have some of these characteristics of these false teachers. And so when you are persecuted... When people oppose you, it is a good thing for you to ask, and for me as well, is this happening because I'm loving Jesus, honoring Jesus, doing, a, doing the right thing, hear me now, doing the right thing in the right way at the right time, or is it happening to me because I'm just not a very nice person to be around? Paul says, all who live godly will suffer persecution, but in contrast, evil men and imposters, oh my goodness, they will grow worse and worse. And here's what's an amazing statement. Deceiving and being deceived. In other words, not only do they lie to others, they eventually lie to themselves. And I'm not surprised to understand that perhaps they think on the one hand they're really serving the Lord. When in actuality, they're serving the evil one. You say, how could they ever discern the difference? Jesus the gospel, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the gospel, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the gospel, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who brings power to the Word of God. Father, we thank you so much for this time tonight. It's not been an easy text, but a needful one. False teaching will get worse. People will become more uh, evil. Things will get badder and badder 
and batter until Jesus comes again. Now, does that mean we need to be pessimistic? No. Does that mean we need to be defeatist? No. Does that mean we need to throw in the towel? No. It means we preach faithfully the gospel until Jesus comes again. We put our hope not in government, but the gospel. We put our hope in a resurrected king, not a, a, a representative or a senator or a governor or a president or no human person. Because they are all sinners like us. They are destined to fail and make mistakes and do foolish things. But King Jesus never does. And therefore, we will draw to him. We will honor him. We will worship him. We will serve him. We will love him. And we will proclaim faithfully his gospel that men and women might reach the end of themselves and then in faith reach out to him who never, ever lets us down, never, ever disappoints us, who once he has hold of us, will never forsake us, will never let us go. Now, that's a gospel worth preaching, and that's a gospel that will save. May we be faithful to it then as we move through and prepare ourselves for these last days. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.